Howdy, I'm Adam, uh, like Steve said. I'm the intern, and I've been teaching the youth for about a year now, uh, on and off, and then consistently throughout the internship. Uh, we're moving into Daniel chapter one today. Uh, the reason for that is because of these youths sitting in front of you. Uh, about eight months ago, one of them came up to me and had a really serious question about their faith. Uh, they were learning about the five pillars of Islam in their public school class. And then after that, they were gonna learn about Buddhism. And Christianity was just a religion that had a flood and an ark and some animals. And so we really needed to dive in about what it means to be a Christian and what's in the Bible. So we started a long study on apologetics and systematic theology to really help solidify them and where they are. After that happened, Joe and I started talking about what to move on to next. And the solution we came to was Daniel chapter one. Well, really just the book of Daniel. Because if you look at it, it's inherently applicable to these folks up here because Daniel and his friends, when they're taken into captivity, they're teenagers. And they're put into a culture that is completely different from where they came from. But as I was studying this, I realized that it's not only applicable to these guys because they're teenagers, it's applicable to everyone. And being a Christian in a culture that is inherently not Christian is difficult. <clears throat> the way that Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, handled their whole ordeal, they did it with their knowledge and faith in God. And it's not only commendable, it's archetypal. Like, they set a standard and an example that we should follow. They give us an example of what it's like to live in a culture that is antithetical to a God-centered life. And despite being in that culture, Daniel and his friends are able to demonstrate unwavering faithfulness to God. And God continues to be faithful to them, as he always is. If you're not familiar with the word antithetical, it means like the opposite but completely opposite, like opposing something, not just different. It's like intentionally going the wrong way on a one-way street. Like that's how opposite it is. And there are a lot of examples that I could use that demonstrate how we live in a culture that is opposed to a God-centered life. Think about things like that are championed by the Bible and then what our current culture, political or otherwise, has to say about it. The Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman. But that's not what our laws say. The Bible says you need to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. That's certainly not the message that I get when I'm looking on social media. It's all about instant gratification, self-feedback, or self-gratification, instant feedback, and improving your image and influence. Think of how many schools have not only removed prayer, but are openly against it and won't allow it by force of punishment. Where we live here in the United States is not a place that follows the God of the Bible. I know it's written on the currency and it's in the Pledge of Allegiance and different things like that, but when we look at the actual culture that we're in, it does not follow the God of the Bible. Daniel and his friends were able to overcome and set a high standard of faithful living in a culture that's very similar to ours. So the bottom line is this. We live 
in a culture that is antithetical to a God-centered life. Put that another way. We live in a culture that is totally opposite and opposed to a God-centered life. But God is faithful, and we must retain our identity as a Christian, despite living in such a culture. And the first chapter of Daniel shows us how he and his friends were able to do that, how they remain faithful to God, and how God is faithful to them. Now, real quick, some historical context here of what's going on in the text of Daniel chapter 1. Uh, it's roughly 605 B.C., and the Jews have lost the war. Jerusalem was under siege. They've lost the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had fallen about 100 years prior, and now that Jerusalem has finally fallen, the Babylonians are taking prisoners and the spoils of war. And during the same time period, this is when Ezekiel and Jeremiah are prophesying. And this is the first of three times that Jerusalem is going to be sacked in Daniel's lifetime before it's rebuilt by Nehemiah. So that's kind of where we are in the whole scheme of the Bible. So let's start reading Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family of the nobles, of the youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. He ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. And to Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So the first major thing to notice here is the culture that they are forced into is completely opposite from the God-centered life that they came from. The text very clearly shows a progression of anti-God moments. And when I say anti-God, I mean anti-Yahweh, like anti the one true God, our God. The culture Daniel was brought into is very much oriented around little gods, like gods with a little g. But the contrast here is pointed out increasingly in these first seven verses. So look at verse 2 again. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. There's a contrast at play here. And if you think of it, you can look at it as kind of like two camps. We'll say the camp of the Jews, the people that follow Yahweh, the good camp, and then the camp of the Babylonians, the ones who follow all the pagan gods. We recall that the wrong way, okay? So when we look at this, the first half of the verse, that's the right way. Okay, there are Jews, God's people. They are living in the land that God gave them, Jerusalem. And the most holy objects of God are in the big, beautiful temple that Solomon built for him. Like, that's all right. That's all the way that it seems it should be. But then everything is taken out of that 
and turned upside down. If you look at the second half of the verse, it says God's people are removed from the land that he gave them. That's not right. And then the vessels, the most holy vessels from the temple, are taken out of God's temple, and they're put into the temple of a pagan god. That's definitely not right. And when we look at verse 4, it continues to show us how opposite this culture is. It says, he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Daniel and his friends are forced to learn a culture that is anti-God. And when I say learn, I mean they're going to acquire a deep, deep understanding of all things Babylonian. They're going to spend three years, not just in a regular public school, but in an elite private institution sponsored by the state that is going to make them, the primary focus is indoctrination and assimilation to the Babylonian culture. You ever think about what public school does sometimes, depending on where you are? Eugene Carpenter said this about their schooling. He said, their education rivaled that of Moses under Pharaoh. And Daniel's special, God-given abilities parallel those of Joseph to a significant extent. Daniel and the other youths would have been exposed to, all right, I gotta take a deep breath for this one. They would have been exposed to cuneiform writing, Babylonian wisdom literature, creation stories, legal corpora, ancient histories, religious rituals and epics, prophecies and the destinies of the nations, letters, dream journals, vision manuals, and undoubtedly a profound indoctrination to the chief science of the day, divination. That is a lot. Like, they are just thrown right into the thick of it, and they have to learn everything. I don't think they were practicing divination when they were living in Israel, right? That's not how Yahweh works. But now they're taken out of that and put into this other culture, and they have to learn it, and they just do. We can see, because it's not surface level, they really have to know who they are while this is all happening. And the final progression here of just showing how different it is happens in verse 7, looking at the name changes. So on the surface, the name changes are just Hebrew names turning into Babylonian names. But when we look closer, the names go from honoring Yahweh, the God of the Jews, to honoring the pagan gods of of Babylon. And looking at the names closely, we can see in each of the Hebrew names, they have a point of glory that shows to God. The E-L in Daniel and in Mishael is shorthand for Elohim, which means God. And the I-A-H in Hananiah and Azariah's names is actually an abbreviation of the Tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H, that means Yahweh. So right off the bat, their names are God-honoring. And now we're going to look at what they meant and then what they're changed to, and you'll see this is the pinnacle of them trying to assimilate them into the other culture. (coughs) Daniel's name means God has judged. And they changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect his life. Bel was one of the Babylonian gods. Hananiah's name means Yahweh, be gracious. And his new name, Shadrach, means command of Aku. Aku is one of the moon gods. Mishael's name means who is what God is. And it was changed to Meshach, meaning who is what Aku is. Again, giving credit to the moon god of Babylon. And finally, Azariah's name means Yahweh has helped. 
and it's changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Again, another god of Babylon. Each Hebrew name honored Yahweh, the one true God. And then they're given Babylonian names that fly in the face of anything Hebrew or true. And it goes against anything they previously knew. Our culture, like theirs, is renaming and redefining things. And it gets further and further from the truth. God is truth. And the only source of truth is in the Bible. The farther away our culture gets from it, the more important it becomes for us to understand God's truth. And a part of that truth is his faithfulness, which is what we see throughout the rest of the chapter and really it's a theme throughout the whole book. But here in verse 2, 9, and 17, we really see God coming in and being faithful and working in ways that only he can do things. So let's read the second part of Daniel, chapter 2 here, starting in verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the ewes who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed, over Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence, and the appearance of the ewes who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner, and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the ewes who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. The second thing we see here in this chapter is that God is faithful. And you might say that sounds strange that God's faithful when Israel just lost the war and they're being carted off to a foreign land. But... <clears throat> We need to remember under what terms and what covenant Israel is operating right now. To do this, we need to go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and 18, where God and the Israelites enter into what's known as the Mosaic Covenant. Moses is presenting the terms to the people of Israel and explaining what's exactly on the line. So Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 18 says this, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. 
you will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. That's a big but. You, if your hearts turn away and you are not obedient, I would declare to you this day, you will certainly be destroyed. God is staying true to his commitment to punish Israel. They did not uphold their end of the covenant, and now they're reaping the consequences. So even though it seems bad, God is holding true to his promises. Now, it's important to understand that when these youths are taken captive, they're not without God. And verse 8 and 9 really shows us that here. Looking at verse 8, it says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God is showing favor to those that are faithful to him, just like he said he would way back in Deuteronomy in the Mosaic Covenant. And I want to point out in verse 8 where Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself. There are theories about what this could have been. Like, we know it was related to the food, but why was the food going to cause defilement? But the text doesn't tell us. So that's really not what we're supposed to focus on here. What we're supposed to look at and understand is that it's not about what the defiling was as much as it is about their heart. It's their commitment and their faithfulness to God that we need to see. God looks at our hearts, and he honors those who are seeking after him. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, specifically in 2 Chronicles 16, 8 and 9, is where the prophet Hananiah is confronting King Asa. Asa decided to ally himself with the king of Aram instead of relying on God for help like he did previously. So the prophet calls him out. He says, Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hands. Right there, the prophet's reminding God is faithful. In verse 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to them. Listen to that verse 9 again, and think of how this applies to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to them. In the midst of God being faithful to his promise to punish Israel, he found four people, four men, whose hearts were fully committed to him. They demonstrated this by refusing to defile themselves. Even after capture, after deportation, after re-education and renaming. And God saw this, and he honored it. He used them to do great things. This example of God using people who are committed to him to do great things is all throughout the Bible. Think of Joseph in Genesis 39 to 41. He's the favored son, and then he gets thrown into a pit. After he's in the pit, he's sold as a slave, and then he goes to the house of Potiphar, right? He lives in Potiphar's house, does really great things, everything's going awesome, and then Potiphar's wife tries to make him compromise his morals. Daniel says no, or not Daniel, Joseph says no, he runs away. But in the, him being obedient, he gets thrown into jail. And not just jail, this is prison. He's there for two years. That is a long time to spend in prison for doing the right thing. But that whole time that he's in prison, he is honoring God. 
He's doing what God put out for him, and he's staying faithful. And then after that two years goes by, Daniel gets called in front of Pharaoh to interpret the dream. And what happens? He saves the entire land of Egypt and the whole nation of Israel. I don't think Joseph knew that was going to happen exactly that way while he was sitting in prison for those two years. But he did know who he was as a Jew, and he knew that he needed to stay faithful to God. And God saw that and used it. The book of Ruth is a similar example of faith in the Bible. After her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, and her husband all die, her sister-in-law decides to leave and go back to the land that she came from so she could get remarried. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, encourages her to do the same. She says, go back to the land of Moab. I have nothing left to offer you. And if you think of this, back in those days, uh, the brothers could carry on the offspring. So like if the husband died, the brother could go and continue the lineage on. That wasn't possible here. There was zero hope for Ruth to have any kind of family inside where she was right there, staying with Naomi. But Ruth replies to Naomi in such a passionate, faithful way. She says in verse 16, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. You see that level of commitment? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth is committed. She is committed to being with Naomi and serving the God of the Israelites. And her faithfulness is honored. Ruth becomes the great-great-grandmother of David. The David, the king of Israel, the greatest king that Israel has ever had before Jesus. That's crazy. Like some random woman from Moab had no hope, no future, nothing was going to happen to her. And now she's faithful to God and she becomes the great, great grandmother of David. Like, wow, that just blows my mind. And it's all due to God's faithfulness. There's one last thing I want to point out here in the second half of the text. If you have a disappointment, that doesn't mean that God's not with you. We see this happen in verse 10, where Ashpenaz actually denies Daniel. He tells him, no, I'm not going not gonna to do it. You guys, I'm afraid for my life, and that's not going to happen. But then in verse 11, it's the overseer that Ashpenaz put in charge that actually grants the request. I'll read verse 11 for you. It says, But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And Daniel switched tactics right here, going from maybe just a little trial period instead of a flat-out request to completely not do what the king had ordered. To be completely honest with you, I've read Daniel at least a half a dozen times. I never saw that part. I never realized that these were two different people. And this is Daniel being persistent. He is not giving up. He knows that this is the line. I cannot cross this. This will defile me. And so it didn't work with Ashpenaz. And so he goes to another guy. He's not going to give up. He goes to the overseer and says, can we do it this way? And God honors that. And it turns out really great for them. And God uses them to do great things. Similar thing happened to Joseph, right? Two years in prison. 
Like he probably thought after being in Potiphar's house, like I've done all right. Like this kind of sucked when we first started. I was in a pit, but now life is good. And he still follows God and then goes to prison for two years. Man, that's a long time. Like I know high school feels like prison for four years, but real prison for two years, that's harsh. And he still stays true. And God uses him to save the entire nation of Israel. That is a big deal. All right, so, so far from Daniel, we've learned two big things. Number one, we live in a culture that is antithetical to a God-centered life. Very similar to what Daniel and his friends were thrust into. And number two, we learn that God is faithful. He's looking for people that are fully committed to him, and he uses those people to do great things. That's what happened with Joseph and with Ruth. Those were great truths that we can pull out of the Bible and that we can realize today. But as the great theologian Christopher Summerfield once said, why do I care? Okay, why do I care? We care because Daniel gives us a roadmap that illustrates the importance of understanding our identity as a Christian. Because we live in a culture that is antithetical to a God-centered life, at some point, this culture will force us to either know and stand in our identity as a Christian or change it and identify with the world. Okay? Let me rephrase it. If, if you don't know your identity in Christ, you will identify with the world. If you don't know your identity in Christ, you will identify with the world. Daniel shows us how to see that and understand the line that can't be crossed and how to stay faithful to God as it approaches. Now, how did they do this? They were strong in their identity before they were carted off. They knew who they were in Yahweh before they were taken captive to the land of Babylon. Howard Rutledge was not. And their experiences in captivity were starkly different because of it. Howard Rutledge was an Air Force pilot who was shot down over Vietnam and spent several years in the prison camp known as the Hanoi Hilton, or as he refers to it, the Heartbreak Hotel. He later wrote a book about it and talks about his time and how unprepared he was spiritually going into that place. This is what he writes. During those longer periods of enforced reflection, it becomes so much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. For example, in the past, I usually worked or played hard on Sundays and had no time for church. For years, Phyllis had encouraged me to join the family at church. She never nagged or scolded, she just kept hoping. But I was too busy, too preoccupied to spend one or two short hours a week thinking about the really important things. Now. The sights and sounds and smells of death were all around me. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for steak. Now I wanted to know more about that part of me that will never die. Now I wanted to talk about God and Christ and the church. But in heartbreak, solitary confinement, there was no pastor, no Sunday school teacher, no Bible, no hymn book, 
no community of believers to guide and sustain me. I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life. It took prison to show me how empty my life is without God. Now, most of us are not going to have an experience like that. We're not going to be Paul on the Damascus Road and have a blinding light. We're not going to be Moses having a burning bush. That'll get us to that point in faith when we say, oh, I had this, and now I am always going to be faithful to God. Probably. Maybe. I, can, I think I can make it on Sundays when I go. That's just not realistic for all of us. Gordon MacDonald was talking about Rutledge's experience, and he says this. He says, the fact is, the average person like you and me is not going to have a great biblical confrontation. Nor would we be satisfied with the dramatic experiences that happen to others. If we are ever to develop a spiritual life that gives contentment, it will be because we approach spiritual living as a discipline, much like the athlete trains his body for competition. I think I've heard that before in a Bible verse. One thing is certain. If we do not choose to take on that discipline, there will come a day, as it came for Howard Rutledge, when we will regret that we had not undertaken the challenge. So, what can we do to be ready for the challenge? How can we prepare ourselves to succeed and be the vessel that God uses to do his work instead of suffering the consequences of sin and neglect? Well, we can learn. Learn from Daniel here and his friends and the example that they set. Two big takeaways that Daniel demonstrated that really solidified his identity in God. Number one, he knew the law by studying scripture. And number two, he lived in a community that encouraged faithfulness to God's word. Daniel knew his identity as a Jew, a child of Yahweh. And he did this through study. The only way Daniel would be able to know that which would defile him is he, if he first knew the laws about defilement. And he didn't just wake up one day knowing all the Jewish laws. Okay? He studied them. And then he studied some more. And he studied some more, and then people quizzed him on it. And when he turned 13, he got quizzed on it before his bar mitzvah. Daniel and his friends came from the Jewish nobility line. They were very well educated, and they knew everything Jewish. The law of God. For them, that's considered the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Now, that's great for them, but what does that mean for us? We, we are not held to the law of God in the Mosaic Covenant as given in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. We are fortunate enough that we have the entire canon of scripture that we can use. So like Daniel, we need to study. And we need to study the entire Bible, not just little parts here and there. And if there's ever times when you're unsure, like about what you're reading, or something you don't quite understand, or there's a situation in life that comes up that's not quite as black and white in the Bible as you were hoping it would be, well, that's where the community comes in. Go ask your friends. Find those people that are sitting next to you, also studying God's word, and ask them, be like, hey, I have this. What do I do with this? You know, that's why it's important to go to church on a regular basis and have friends around you who are studying the Bible that you can rely on. So, the first and primary way of knowing your identity in Christ is through the Bible. There are lots of Bible verses that'll tell you 
what a Christian life looks like, what to do, what not to do. I'm not going to go over every single one of those, because you need to sit and read your Bible yourself. But I'll cover a few. The first one is you might think of as what every megachurch gets its logo from, or its motto, love God, love others, or some derivation of that. And this comes from Matthew 22, 37, and 40, where Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Christians should love God above all else, and they should love others. Now, Galatians 5 helps us get into a little bit more of the specifics of it. Verse 22 and 23, the Holy Spirit is telling us the fruit of the Spirit. He's giving us a list of attributes that should be a natural outflow of the Christian life. And it reads, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. That's great. That's what you should be seeing. Now, right before that, in verse 19, there's another list. It's kind of the opposite. It says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, and the list goes on and on. Those are the things that are not of God. And to be very honest with you, I have found these two lists pretty convicting at times, especially with my kids or working out on the base doing things, working with people that I don't quite get along with. At home, I'll be sitting on the couch and then the kids will start fighting over something. Or they'll knock a glass off the table and it shatters. And sometimes my first response is what you might classify as an outburst of anger. And in those moments, that hurts. Because I realize I'm responding out of my sinful nature and not my spiritual nature. I'm not demonstrating love, patience, kindness, gentleness. Like, that's not what came out of me at that moment. And it hurts. But I use that as kind of a litmus test to tell me, what am I doing, or is my thought process the way that it should be in this moment? I encourage you to try thinking about your reactions to stressors in life in that kind of way. Are you operating out of your sinful nature with an outburst of anger? Or are you operating out of your spiritual nature and the fruit of the spirit and having patience and love when something comes up? Those are just two examples of how the Bible has helped me personally understand my identity as a Christian and what it means to live a life like that on a daily basis, trying to be God-centered. Being in strong Christian community is the other part that really helps. Now, being in community is important. And being in strong Christian community is even more important. Lots of reasons I could list why. But there's one recent example in my life that comes to mind that is so recent it's still ongoing. Um, if you know my family, you've probably noticed that most of them are not here today. Uh, that's because we've been in a house fighting off sickness for the last two weeks or so. I'd like to say that that culminated in an ER trip last weekend 
but really that was just the start leading up into this week. Where it really culminated was Friday night when uh, Lauren and I were talking and she had just gotten off the phone with the nurse advice line and they said if your baby, Andy, that's 10 months old, doesn't drink more fluids, you need to take him to the ER right away because he needs to get fluids so he can fight this off. And it was in that moment that we realized, ouch, like this is, this is gonna be rough. Uh, I sent out a text to some prayer warriors in my life. A group of people, people that are at this church, that are at churches past, people that I know are strong Christians that are my community that would pray for me. This is what I said. I said, please keep Andy and me and Lauren in your prayers. We are on the verge of an ER trip tonight if he doesn't drink more fluids when he wakes up next time. Everyone has been fighting RSV, and since Andy's the littlest, it's hitting him the hardest. Thanks in advance, you'd be surprised how effective your prayers truly are in the day-to-day -day life of my family. I sent that at about 7 p.m. on Friday night. We had been doing everything that we could that was in our power to take care of our little baby boy, and it wasn't working. Uh, but on Saturday morning, I sent out an update message, and this is what it said. Last night, we had the bag packed and the front door unlocked as Lauren was heading to the hospital to get Andy some fluids. And then he decided to drink a little, and then he ate a little, and then he drank and ate a little more. He did a nebulizer treatment at home and sipped a little more formula, then slept from midnight to 5 a.m. He woke up to drink a few ounces and slept until 8 a.m. It's the most sleep he and Lauren and I have had at one time in over a week. Praise the Lord. He seems to be doing much better this morning, and we're not fully out of the woods, but he seems to have turned a corner. If we can just keep him eating and drinking little bits here and there, we are hopeful we will not need to go to the hospital. Thanks for the prayer support. Keep it coming. It's working. That's why it's important to live in a God-centered community. People that you can rely on for prayer support, for physical support. People, we've had someone bring us dinner, really just a hot cup of coffee, which we have been surviving on the last two weeks, it was so great. It was so nice to just have people in our lives willing to pour into us and help us through this really hard time. Now that's an example from my life of why it's important to be in biblical community. The Bible is also full of examples of it. Here in Daniel, we see a community of Jewish men committed to not defiling themselves, despite being captives in a foreign land. They surrounded each other with support and went through this whole ordeal together. Now, when you look at the conversation that happens in verse 8 and 10, you might think that it's only Daniel in there. If we read it, it says, But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God gave the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I am afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. <clears throat> if you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Now at first glance, it seems like Ashpenaz is only talking with Daniel. But if you look at the notes in a study Bible, you might see one that says the Hebrew word here used for your and you is actually plural. Okay, so that means that it only says Daniel's name, 
but it's understood that he has other people with him during the conversation, presumably the other three guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So to put that in Texan terms, Ashpenaz is saying y'all, okay? So I'm gonna read verse 10, but we're gonna do it like a Texan and put the y'all in there where it's supposed to be. <clears throat> he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord the King who has ordered that y'all eat this food and wine. If y'all become pale and thin compared to the other, use all y'all's age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Okay? Daniel's not doing this alone. He's got his group with them, and it's recognized by other people that all y'all are going to look worse. They, it is them in this together. There are other places in the Bible that point out this text, that point out the need for mutual support. If you look at Proverbs 27, 17, it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That's talking about believers, being in community and talking to each other. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That's talking about us working together, being together through the thick and thin of it. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. They're talking about a fight, right? When it comes to it, you want to have someone standing there next to you. And for a New Testament example, we have Acts 2.42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Why do you think we have a regular church service, fellowship lunches, home groups, Bible studies, and book studies? It's because we're told to do it. This is how you live in community, in deep Christian community, so you don't compromise, <clears throat> so you know what it means to actually be a Christian. When the world asks us to defy ourselves, we need to respond in faithfulness to God and not identify with the world. Being in community and studying God's word regularly is what's gonna help us to truly know our identity. Having that foundation gives us the ability to know where to draw the line in the sand. And when the culture is pushing us back, it tells us the things that we can not compromise on. Now, we said before that this passage is not so much about the defilement as it is the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends. But it is helpful to understand what defilement meant to them so we can look at it in our own lives. So if you look at the Bible dictionary definition for the word defile, it's gonna tell you to look at desecrate. They're synonymous and they carry the same connotation. To desecrate an object means to defile an object or place by some unclean or impure act. This can render an object unholy, impure, unclean, or can simply be a great offense to the object or place. So now that you know what defilement means, it begs the question, what defiles you? What defiles you, and how do you know 
what defiles you. We listed some of the things earlier from Galatians 5, sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, the list goes on. But I want you to think about what actually in your life defiles you or threatens to defile you. The big one that comes to mind is pornography. At least half a dozen verses talk about not perverting God's design for sex and marriage. Yet there are many people who consider pornography acceptable and they call themselves Christians. But if we study the word of God and we surround ourselves with other strong Christian people, we're probably going to come across Matthew 5, 27 and 28, where Jesus says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You might stay long hours at work because your marriage is too hard at home, or you have an anger problem, or sometimes you drink too much. That doesn't sound like the fruit of the Spirit being on display in your life. It doesn't sound like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. So what is it in your life that defiles you or threatens to defile you? And how do we know it? Well, Daniel and his friends knew who they were, and they remained faithful to God. And that's what led them not to defile themselves. So that brings out the next point, that we don't draw the line here. God has, and God does draw the line. It's written in the scripture, and it's written on your hearts. The first line we should never cross are those that are very clearly laid out in the Bible. And when something comes up that's not clearly prohibited in the Bible, well, that's where we go and ask someone, right? That's where the community comes in. And you use your God-given conscience to help guide you. Romans 14 explains the freedom that we have in Christ to, that might say that one thing is bad for one person, but not completely bad for another. What matters is your heart and your faithfulness to God and what he's put on it. So Romans 14, 29 says, but if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it, for you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. So listen to that last part and think about what it is in your life that might defile you. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. God put that mechanism of conviction in you for a reason. Listen to it. And if you're unsure if that's your conscience and the Holy Spirit working through your life, or if it's the sinful nature that has corrupted something inside you, ask someone. Go out, reach out to your community and get advice. Get godly advice. So iron can sharpen iron. That is an essential part of standing strong in your identity in Christ and remaining faithful to him. And if you come across someone, someone that has a different line, respect it. We can lean on a quote from Philip Melanchthon here who explains how to deal with this better than I can. He was a theologian around the time of Martin Luther. And concerning the different opinions of Christians, he said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. When you're dealing with someone that has a different opinion, think of this. In essentials, 
unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. We need to remember this when we encounter a Christian brother or sister that has a differing opinion or a line on a certain topic. Now, before we wrap this up today, I want to give you just a few examples of people in the Bible who knew their identity as followers of God and who remained faithful to their convictions and were used by God to do great things. We already talked about Joseph in Genesis 39. Man, he ran from Potiphar's wife. And it's not like a, I'm just going to turn my shoulder and walk away. It was she tried to seduce him, get her to sleep with him. He knew that was going to cross the line, that that would defile him, would be unfaithful to his master. And so he ran. But he didn't just run. He ran so far, so fast, he left his cloak behind him. Like, that's pretty embarrassing. But he knew what he needed to do. He needed to get out of there. And so that's what he did. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is the same as before, but it uses their Babylonian names, they won't bow down to the king's statue. But they did this together. It is the three of them, like that core group, not just one of them. And we read there in chapter 3, verse 16 and 18, it says, they're talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, they say, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You hear that last line? Even if he does not, we will not serve your gods. That is faith. That is powerful. Even if he does not, we will not serve your gods. They are committed to God, despite what's going to happen to them. And they know that God's going to be faithful. Even in death, right? God is faithful. The last example I'll leave you with comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 11. And if you haven't memorized the Gospel of Matthew like we're about to do in the youth here, just kidding. <laughs> this is where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. Okay, So he's out there being tempted by the devil before he goes into his full-on ministry to the world. And with every temptation, you know how he responds to the devil? With scripture. Okay, Every time the devil comes up to him, Jesus looks at him and says, the scriptures say, the scriptures say, Jesus knew who he was. He knew his identity as the son of God the Father. He knew the scriptures, the Bible. That is what rooted Jesus' identity. And that's a great example for us to follow. We need to know our identity in Christ as a Christian. And we're going to do that by reading the scriptures, God's word that he has given to us. Really study it. So when your trial comes that tests your identity, you'll respond with faithfulness to God and not identify with the world. So, what did we learn today in Daniel chapter 1? This is where I usually make the youth tell me everything that I just told them the last 40 minutes, but I'll spare you that for today. We learned 
that Daniel and his friends were forced into a culture that is antithetical to a God-centered life. This culminated when all of their names that they had that were previously honoring to Yahweh are changed to honor the gods of Babylon. We also saw throughout the chapter that God is faithful, always, even when it may be something that we think is bad. God is faithful to his word and his promises. Daniel and his friends were strong in their identity because they studied the scripture and they lived in a community that valued commitment to God. When they were told to do something that would defile them and violate their commitment to God, they chose to stay faithful to him. God honored their faith and used them to do great things because of it. We need to do the same. We need to recognize that we live in a culture that is completely opposite and often hostile to a God-centered life. Yet remember that God remains faithful. There will come a time when we are forced to stand strong in our identity as a Christian or compromise and identify with the world. The example here we saw today shows us the need to be in Christian community. And that means going to church and living life with those around you who are studying God's word diligently and regularly. So when the time comes and you are told to defile yourself and identify with the world, are you going to do it? Or are you instead going to respond confidently in faithfulness to God and stand strong in your identity as a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you so much for everything that you've given us, the time that we have to sit here and study your word, and the time to understand what it means to be a Christian and follow you and be in community that will really sharpen us as we need to be. As we go out into the world today and the rest of the week and just the rest of our lives, please keep reminding us of your faithfulness and show us in your word how we need to be the Christian that you've called us to be. Show us the lines that we need to draw. And when we're having a hard time, send us the people, send our community to us so that they can help lift us up and keep us sharp and remain faithful to you. We just love you so much, and we thank you for the time that you've given us today. We pray this in your name. Amen.